If you have your Bibles today, I encourage you to turn to uh, Philippians uh, chapter 1. I am glad you're here. It's been a wonderful day to worship Christ. I'm so thankful for His goodness. Uh, He's always good to us. Every good and perfect gift that we have in our life, we know that we have from God. Uh, And we're grateful for how kind He is to uh, His children. I also appreciate your patience. Uh, I I know things have been complicated around here for quite a while. Uh, Right now, our main hallway is shut off. So if you're a guest today and you're a female and need to use the restroom, you need to go out and go that way. And if you're a male and need to use the restroom, you go out and go this way. Uh, But uh, things should ease up in the next few weeks. We have some air conditioner issues still being resolved and and tweaking things. But I appreciate how patient you've, you've been. Uh, I know that vacations are starting for many of you, so I wanted to uh, uh, let you know that we're doing some things where you can stay connected. I think next, starting next Sunday, we will be uh, presenting our services via video on Facebook Live. Uh, and if you're out of town and want to be a part of that, you can be a part of our worship services uh, during that. And I hope this helps your family stay connected to our church family uh, in, in the days ahead. Uh, and this summer, as uh, you might know, we've been... Uh, walking verse by verse through the book of Philippians. Uh, And let me catch you up to speed if you weren't here last week when we uh, kicked off the book. Uh, The church at Philippi was started by Paul on his second missionary trip, uh, and he fell in love with the church. He has this deep affection for the church, and maybe it was because of their unique makeup. The church at Philippi was a very diverse church. Uh, it was made up of uh, of, of Greeks and uh, Romans. It was made up of uh, native Macedonians. Uh, but it was also made up of the very rich, uh, like Lydia, who was a seller of purple, blue-collar people like the Philippian jailer that we meet in Acts chapter 16, uh, as well as a, a slave uh, girl who was saved in that very same chapter. So it was this very diverse church, and yet the ground was level at the, in that church because they were brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and, and Paul also loved the church because they bought into his mission. They, they believed it was worthy of investing in. They sent their best leaders to serve alongside of Paul, and, and they also supported him financially. And, and that's the occasion of the book of Philippians. Paul writes the book of Philippians to thank the church uh, for their recent uh, gift that they had sent to him while he was in prison. And while he writes the letter, he takes some time to address some of the issues that, that, that they're facing. Now, they were a great church, no doubt about it, but, but any time you put people together, there's challenges. Uh, they had competing leaders, apparently. Selfishness has a tendency to creep into congregations, and it looks like that that was a problem that they were facing at Philippi. Uh, they were obviously afraid of persecution. Early on, the Roman Empire didn't care about Christians. They thought they were just another sect of Judaism. But now all of a sudden, things are changing, and the winds of persecution are starting to blow against the church. Uh, and so there's fear in the congregation. And, and as we are going to learn in the last chapter of this book, there were two ladies who weren't getting along. And if Mama ain't happy, ain't anybody happy. And you had two, two mad mamas uh, in this church, and there was some division going on there in the congregation. Now, throughout the book, Paul subtly addresses these, things, he lo- uh, these issues. He loves the church a lot, and so he doesn't just come down hard on them. He, he uses kind of kid gloves with them. Uh, but you can see him addressing these issues every chapter. 
And by the end of the book, he's going to say, guys, uh, what you're facing is not worth losing your joy over. And you, the famous scripture that he says toward the end of the book is rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. This is a great verse, and we're going to dig into this uh, when we get there. But I, I've read the book of Philippians all my life. I knew most of the sections and most of the verses, but it had never dawned on me there's a parallel verse in the section that we're talking about today. At the very start of the book, this is at the end of the book, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. But in our section today, Paul says, And in this I rejoice, and in, yes... I will rejoice. It kind of blew my mind this week as I saw that. I was like, oh, wow, these are the bookends to the meat of the letter that Paul is is sending them. Now, today we're going to focus on can you rejoice when it's hard? Can you rejoice when life doesn't go the way that you would choose? Have you ever been complaining about something and somebody looked at you, maybe a, your spouse or a good friend, and said, quit your whining? You ever had anybody close enough to you to say that? You know, most of the time when somebody says that, you know what happens? You get mad, right? You know, what, how dare you? You don't understand what I'm going through. You were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. Everything goes right for you. You, you don't have any hardships. But have you ever had anybody subtly say, maybe not in those words, quit your whining, but you knew what they meant, who was facing a more difficult circumstance than you are? Have you ever found yourself complaining in front of someone who was going through a lot worse situation than you, and all of a sudden it dawned on you that, wow, I really don't have anything to complain about? As Paul says, rejoice in the Lord to the church at Philippi, he's sitting in a Roman jail. And and he's being uh, watched by an imperial guard 24-7. He's chained to them. But his experience with hardship is much more extensive than this situation. The events that led up to his jailing uh, start in Acts 21... And Paul is visiting the church in Jerusalem to take him a gift, and he's just trying to help out this hurting church. But while he's there, he's falsely accused. And, and, and this false accusation uh, leads to many, many hardships. It, when, when he's falsely accused, uh, all of a sudden, uh, the mob comes in to, to want, and they want to kill him. They, they try to lynch him there uh, in, in Jerusalem. He's put in jail for two years, and even while he's in jail, there are plots to kill him there. Uh, after he's been incarcerated two years, uh, he uh, is shipped to Rome. He's extradited, and on his journey, uh, the the weather gets rough, and they start throwing. Is Gilligan's Island going through anybody else's mind? The weather started getting rough, and uh, to, to stay afloat, they, they started throwing cargo overboard, and they threw their supplies overboard, and so they were literally starving to death. Things get worse. They encounter a shipwreck, uh, but by the grace of God, Paul's able to hang on to a plank, float ashore on the island of Malta. Things seem to be smoothing out for Paul, and there he is bitten, 
by a poisonous snake. By the grace of the Lord, he lives and he makes it to Rome, only to make it to Rome as the emperor Nero starts losing his mind and starts persecuting Christians. Uh, and, but while Paul is there, uh, Paul uh, uh, starts to, to, to write a, a, a letter to the Philippians. Now, this is not a postcard from a vacation. This is a, a heartfelt letter from an intense time of hardship. But yet, Paul doesn't talk about himself. He doesn't complain about his circumstances. He doesn't try to belittle or get even with those who put him there. He simply rejoices in Jesus. Now, I don't know what's going on in your life today. I tried to think this week, what might be going on in the life of our congregation? My guess is there's several of you here who have circumstances that are less than ideal. Hardships that you're facing. But, but it's unlikely, and though I guess it might be possible, that you're suffering at the same level that Paul suffered. And yet Paul's words to you would be the words that he tried to live his life by. He says, I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Why, why was Paul able to rejoice in his chains? And how can we? Well, I think we learned some things here in this section we're going to encounter today in verse 12 of chapter 1. The, the very first thing that, that pops off the page in me is the reason Paul could, could rejoice in whatever he went through is he wasn't living for easy circumstances. He was living to advance the gospel. The friends at Philippi had sent condolences and they even sent him a gift and, and hoping that gift might make it better, but there's no news on how Paul's doing. No complaints uh, for about the chains he's wearing or the wounds from the wreck or the stress from the storm. Instead, he starts talking about how, how, how the gospel's doing. Verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me, you know, just those little things like snake bite and shipwreck and imprisonment now for four years, and those things that have happened to me have actually turned out for the advancement of the gospel. Paul believed that his chains gave him opportunity. He said, I see God moving in this. You know why? Paul was looking for God to move in his circumstances. Those of us who are Christians are called to a great commission to go into all the world and make disciples. That's our calling, but we live our life like we're called to a life of comfort. We live our life like we're called to, to experience as many things as we can and make it all about us. And when you do that, when things go wrong, you'll be miserable. But you can rejoice in whatever comes your way if you see your life as God's instrument for His glory. And Paul saw his life as, as a tool in God's hand. And the reason he could rejoice in his difficulty is he wasn't thinking about how it felt to him. He was thinking about what God was doing through him. And Paul said, God is moving. The gospel was advancing on a couple of fronts. First, it was advancing through Paul. He says, the gospel is advancing so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. And to everyone else that my imprisonment is in the cause of Christ. 
The Bible says as a result of Paul's imprisonment, the whole imperial guard hears the gospel. The imperial guard were the elite soldiers that were closest to, to Caesar, to the emperor. And they were tasked with taking shifts, guarding Paul. They were his personal guard 24-7. And I can only imagine what it must have been like to be chained to the greatest evangelist to ever live. You know, you're talking about a captive audience. He was, he, he was sharing the gospel over and over with the imperial guard. There's no doubt that he told them that Jesus was crucified for their sin. And that he was buried on the third day and that he rose from the dead. And, and how if you'll put your trust in Christ, he'll give you forgiveness of sin and eternal life if you'll only believe. Well, the result is, historians tell us, that thousands of the imperial guard came to Christ. One of the strongest segments of believers in the entire Roman Empire was in the Imperial Guard. I wonder how that started. God orchestrated the events of Paul's life so that the gospel would go forward. You can put the greatest missionary in jail, but you can't chain up the gospel and stop it. And you need to know this, though you may feel like you're in chains, the gospel is not. Maybe you feel chained in your life to a desk. And you don't see any purpose in your work. Did God put you there so that in that location you could share the gospel? Maybe you feel in chains to a car and you're a salesman traveling from place to place. Have you ever thought that God put you in that position so that you could use it for the advancement of the gospel? Maybe you feel enchained uh, while you're in a classroom. Have you ever thought that God put a bright light of a believer in your classroom so that you could be a gospel witness? Maybe you feel in chains where you are. What do you do? Do you complain about your chains? Or do you look for opportunities for the gospel? Verse 14. He goes on to say that most of the brothers in the Lord have also gained confidence. Paul said the gospel is advancing because I've been telling these imperial guards. And man, the church is growing like crazy. But not only that, other brothers in the Lord have gained confidence from my imprisonment. And dare even more... Uh, more dare even to speak more boldly the message of Christ. Now, that's counterintuitive. You'd think if somebody got thrown in jail because they were sharing the message of Christ, that that would scare the brothers to death. You, you would think that his chains would have, have stymied the spreading of the gospel. You'd expect Christians to keep a low profile, to fly under the radar, but no, they're emboldened. Because there's a truth in life that faithfulness in the midst of adversity builds faithfulness. This last week, we celebrated the 75th anniversary of D-Day. Uh, many of you are aware of that. D-Day is when uh, our uh, allied forces created a beachhead through incredible loss. Uh, in France and started taking back mainland Europe from Nazi Germany. Leaders from around the world spoke to pay tribute to those who had showed such bravery. I listened live on the radio to a 21-gun salute. 
a haunting 21-gun salute about the bravery uh, and stories of the bravery of those men were told. I even heard about a 93-year-old and a 94-year-old from Britain who jumped out of a plane <laughs> to sell it. Yeah, some of y'all heard about that. Uh, to, uh, people who had uh, jumped in Normandy uh, jumped again uh, on this day out of celebration. I've often thought, how did those guys keep getting out of the boat? Because their brothers went before them. Because they saw the bravery of those who went before them. And Paul said, what has happened? People have thrown me in jail and they think they're stopping the gospel. But they see me rejoicing in the gospel. And they see me telling the imperial guard. And you know what has happened? Is the gospel is taking off. And men are gaining in boldness. You know, one of the things I love about the New Testament is it's honest. You would never include in some made-up story what is told next. In verse 15, he says, To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and strife. I know some people are out there preaching the gospel, and I know they're only doing it out of jealousy, but others out of goodwill. These do so out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for, for the defense of the gospel. Some preachers have mixed motives, but many were proclaiming Christ from goodwill. They knew that Paul was in prison, and they said the message must go on, and they were sincerely proclaiming. But Paul says there's this other group in verse 17. He says they proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely. They're seeking their own, uh, own glory and trying to heap stress onto me. He doesn't say, though, they're preaching a false gospel. And if you've ever read Paul, he doesn't mince words. Paul would tell you if they were preaching uh, an improper gospel. uh, And if they were, Paul would have called them out. So they must have been preaching the truth. But they were trying to exalt themselves and humiliate Paul by doing this. But what's surprising is Paul's response. Notice what he says in the very next verse. Paul says in verse 18, he says, what does it matter? Okay, yeah, so they, so they want to embarrass me. Who cares? All I care about is that Christ is being proclaimed. You see, Paul's not about to play their games. His ego doesn't need to be stroked. He's emptied himself. He doesn't care about the approval of others. He has the approval of God on his life. And, and see, for Paul, it was about making Jesus famous, not making Paul famous. It wasn't about his glory. It was about Christ. And so he does something so unexpected. He says, in this I rejoice. He said, if the worst thing people could do to me is preach Jesus trying to get even with me, awesome! I can live with that. I will rejoice in this. He applauds their efforts and he celebrates their success. Now, he's not saying motives don't matter. Just as he's not saying that his trials weren't painful, but Paul's about the gospel. That's why he can have joy in his struggles. I know I'm speaking to a congregation who want joy as the the baseline of your life. I know that. I don't have to guess this. You want to be a joy-filled person. If you want joy, You're going to have to work on making Jesus famous and not you. 
If I ask you what your top five priorities were and you weren't sitting in church, what would you write down? What making money, getting married, getting out of college, traveling to new places, getting a new job, retiring early. And there's nothing wrong with any of these things unless they become so devouring that they squeeze the priority of the gospel out of your life. And some people here say, I'm a Christian, and we say that Jesus is all the world to me, and I'm here for Him, but we live like we're completely here for us. And here's the problem. When you live for you, your joy dies as you die. But when you live for something greater than you and a cause that will outlive you, your joy doesn't diminish and if you are a joy seeker, if, as John Piper says, you are a Christian hedonist, then you've got to put your, your, your pursuit uh, uh, towards something that will not diminish. Spurgeon said once, that men who chase anything but Christ are carrying coffins on their back and they're having dust kicked in their face because the pursuit of anything but Christ is a pursuit that diminishes. Period. Should you love your families? Oh my goodness, yes! Because Christ has, has given you this precious gift that you can invest His love in. But if your family's if pursuing loving your family exceeds pursuing Christ, wait until the kids move out or move away. Or disappoint. Or a spouse dies. That's a pursuit of death. If that's all you've got. If it's about making success, oh, make your money, do your thing, but wait until you retire and all of a sudden inflation continues and your, your massive amount, which was going to make it so easy, now is diminishing. Or you die early. Or the one you were going to share it with dies early. <laughs> Live for fame, and you might... Achieve it for a certain amount of time. You know, maybe you're a one-hit wonder and you have that 15 minutes of fame. You know? Or maybe you make it big, but the next generation comes along and says, how did they make it big? Or you could pursue Christ, whose value never diminishes, ever. In fact, it gets more precious the closer we get to Him. Could the reason you lack so much joy in your life be because your focus is on less significant priorities? Guys, it's very possible to have the right doctrine and right beliefs in our church and live joyous, joyous, joyless lives because we're pursuing lesser things. 
It's also possible to have the right beliefs and contradict the gospel by the way we conduct ourselves. And that's why Paul says in verse 20, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but, but that now as always with boldness, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or death. Paul understood that his testimony was his life. If you're living to advance the gospel, your life has to support the message. Ray Ortland, in his book, The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ, explains this dynamic through an equation. He says, gospel fidelity, you know the gospel, but you don't live it out in authentic Christian community, equals hypocrisy. When the church preaches the gospel and talks about truth and grace and forgiveness and God's love, but then can't get along with one another... And the culture in the church is filled with mistrust and cynicism and gossip and prejudice and unforgiveness. Then there's no holiness. And then the outside community asks, what message do you offer? Trust Christ and he will forgive you of your sin and he will change your life. And they look at us and say, oh, really? You don't look very changed. On the other side of the equation, Christian community minus gospel fidelity equals fragility. If we're loving one another and forgiving one another and affirming of one another and love is all around, but there's no firm foundation in Christ, no standard of the truth, no definition of sin, no clear gospel teaching, then the church is stable. It's it's fragile and could easily wander into destruction. But when you have gospel fidelity and real Christian living, there's power. When there are strong convictions of truth matched by people who are, who are expressing their faith through the way that they live, the gospel is powerful. And Paul says, I want my life to match my words. And he did so because he loved Jesus. He was living for him. That's why he says in the very next phrase, verse 21, For me, living's Christ. For me to live is Christ. This was not always the case with Paul, and it wasn't always the case with us. There was a time when every one of us in here was not in love with Jesus. We were separated from God by our sin, and we did not become Christians simply because we checked a box on a census, and we did not become Christians by simply taking on the name Christ. We became a Christian when we opened up our heart to the gospel. And the gospel tells us two things. Number one, it tells us that Christ paid for our sins. It tells us that our sin was so bad that God couldn't just overlook our sin, but we needed a Savior to die in our place, and Christ came to pay for our sins so we could be forgiven. And then the Gospel tells us that He gives us His righteousness. If He just forgives us, we're neutral before God. But we need to be right before Him. We need a Savior not just to remove our guilt, but to give us perfect righteousness. And the Bible says that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Because He gave His life for me, I want to live for Him. And whatever comes to live is Christ. Verse 21, He goes on to say, But to die is gain. I'd say that most people in this room would say dying is not gain. If we were honest, because when somebody calls and tells you about a loved one who's died, what do we immediately say? Oh, I'm so sorry. Well, they were a believer in Jesus. I'm so sorry. 
I get it because we love them. And from our perspective, it's incredible loss. But if you love Jesus, Paul says it's incredible gain. It is gain to go and be with Christ. Paul makes this statement because he knew if he lives in the flesh, it means fruitful work for him and he could keep on sharing the gospel. And he didn't know which to choose. Should he still be used for the gospel or should he go be with the Lord? He says, I'm pressured by both. I have this deep desire to depart, to be with Christ. And that's far better. And he knew that though Christ is with us now, one day we will be with him. Our faith will become sight. We'll be free from the presence of sin. And I just want to tell you, I can't wait for that day. I can't wait for the day that I don't have to say, get out, get out, get out. Y'all have those thoughts? I can't wait for the day that I don't respond in a way that brings me shame. I can't wait for the day when I don't have to to worry uh, uh, about that old sinful nature rearing its head and doing something that would bring dishonor to Christ. I can't wait for that day. I can't wait for the day that I see Him face to face and I'm in heaven with Him and the old has passed away and all things become new and there's no more crying and there's no more I'm sorry and there's no more death because all those former things are gone and it's only life. I can't wait for that day. Paul says... To to live as Christ. But boy, if I could go there, that would be gain. That's why death is gain for, for the Christian. That is why death is, is hope. But in verse 24, he says, But I know to remain in the flesh is necessary for you. I understand this, and I'm persuaded of this. I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. And then verse 26, he says, So that because of me, your confidence in Christ can grow as I come to see you again. Paul was claiming his deliverance. He was confident that his current situation was temporary. And I don't know if God just told him or what, but he knew it was going to work out. But even if he was not, I believe he's saying in this whole section, my imprisonment isn't going to last. I'll be delivered from it. Maybe I'll be vindicated at my trial and released. Maybe I won't, and I'll go to heaven to be with Jesus Christ. But either way, I'm okay. See, Paul trusted in God's providential care. He trusted in the sovereign oversight of God over his life. You want to have joy? You just got to get to the place that no matter what happens in your life, And preachers got to listen to this too because this morning I was fed up. I wasn't in any mood to preach this morning, I'll be honest. I was struggling. You know, I come in, we had brand new air conditioners and they were brand new broke. You know, we got babies in the nursery right now who are toasting. (laughs) You know, it's 78 degrees in there with 30 kids. You know, I mean, I was like, oh my goodness, it can't be like this. There go five parents out to check their kids. (laughs) I said, you know. I was like, and I went into my office and I started to study and started to prepare. And I heard the words of Paul that I'd included in my scripture. We know that God uses all things, Nick. All things. Not just some things, all things. Paul believed that human circumstances lie in God's hand and God uses them for our good and the spread of the gospel. And it's true for, for, for us just as it was for Paul. God works not merely in spite of, but through the adversity in our lives. And God is using circumstances to advance the gospel and display His glory. And so whatever circumstance you find yourself in, trust God, lean into Him. Know that He's directing the affairs of your life. 
I'm going to wrap up this next section pretty quickly. Uh, I just got a buzzer from the nursery. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. It, it, invest your life in making genuine disciples. Paul found joy in seeing people fall in love with Jesus. Verse 27. He said, just one thing, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, he'll know they're living that life worthy of Christ. The rest of that verse, he, he, he tells them to be steadfast. He, he says, I, I, he knew that it didn't take long for good churches to become infected with wrong things, so he caused them to conduct themselves consistently and hold on. Facing hardship's not easy. Leaning into Jesus uh, instead of pushing away is a choice that we have to make, so we stand firm. And he, he says, be unified. And we're going to talk about this a lot next week. But we need to be of one mind. And he tells them to be fearless in verse 28. Don't be frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction from them. We've alluded to this already, but let me state it more plainly now. Whenever Christians live as they ought to live, there will be persecution. That's true for all Christians. Second uh, Timothy 3, verse 12 says, In fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Every, I, I'd like for, we're, we're going to take just a second, and I want everybody to let that Word of God soak in on you for just a second. You won't hear this in your Prosperity Gospel update on Wednesday. Your YouTube video that makes you feel better, but it is in the Word of God, and it is a categorical statement. You live a godly life, it'll be hard. Period. It won't always be physical persecution, although it, that's happening to our brothers and sisters around the world right now. It may be ridicule from classmates or family members. It may be the fact that you're overlooked for a promotion. For Paul and the Philippians, it often did mean physical persecution. And yet Paul says, don't be frightened, don't panic, for it has been given to you. Uh, that word is actually, it has been graced to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. Verse 30 You've seen how I handled it. You've seen the struggle that I faced. I'm sharing it with you. His point is, hang in there. Be faithful. Be fearless. I've got a video I want to show to you. It's a couple minutes long. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to give you our points. And we're going to be done in about five or six minutes total with the service today. This is a video that I saw a few weeks ago. Uh, it was, it's actually about seven or eight years old. It's by a pastor from Hawaii named Wayne Cordero. Uh, some of you all have heard of Wayne. He trains house churches and pastors uh, in China and pastors a church. And this is one of his experiences. Let me finish with this uh, story. We go to China from time to time, and, and uh, uh, we train leaders. 
And this time we brought up 22 leaders from the Hunang province. And they rode 13 hours on a train to get to a hotel that they came up two by two in these elevators as, so as to not draw any attention. And then they got to a hotel room, a little apartment uh, room. It's only about 700 square feet in the little living room, no air conditioning, hardwood floor, 22 sat there. I came in, and when you teach in China, you start at 8 in the morning, and you don't get done till 5 at night. You teach the whole day. They were sitting there, all 22 of them, and I looked around, and I said, Now, if we get caught, what will happen to me? They said, Oh, you'll get deported in 24 hours, and we'll go to prison for three years. I said, You're kidding. How many of you have been in prison for your faith? Out of 22, 18 raised their hands. I thought, no way. I looked at him and I said, you, you 22 people, how many people do you oversee? Because they were all of these small group leaders, underground church leaders in the Hunang province. I said, how many, if you counted up all the people under your jurisdiction, how many would it be? And they counted them up and they said, a little over 20 million. I said, what? See, we forget there's 1.3 billion people in China. This is crazy. Well, I had 15 Bibles and I passed them out. Obviously, seven didn't get them. And I said, let's turn to Second Peter chapter 1 and we're going to read it. And just then, one lady handed hers to somebody next to her. And I thought, hmm, interesting. Well, we turned there anyway. And as we started reading it, I understood why she gave it away. She had memorized the whole thing. She just recited the whole chapter. When it was done, I went over to her at a break and I said, you, you, you recited the whole chapter. She says, oh, yes, I've memorized many chapters. I said, where did you memorize many chapters? She said, in prison. I said, you have much time in prison. <laughs> so I said, but don't they confiscate the Bible? And she said, yes. So people bring in scriptures written on pieces of paper and they bring it in. So I said, but then if they find that piece of paper on you, won't they confiscate that? She said, oh, yes, that's why you memorize it as fast as you can. Because even though they can take the paper away, they can't take what's hidden in your heart. I thought, wow. Well, after three days, you fall in love with these people. And when it was done, I said, how can I pray for you? I'm going to go back to America. You guys have been just so wonderful. How can I pray for you? They said, you know, Wayne, you guys can gather like this whenever you want to in America. We can't. Could you pray that one day we'll be just like you? And I looked at him and I said, I will not do that. Big, incredulous eyes looked at me and they said, why? <laughs> I said, because you guys rode a train for 13 hours to get here. In my country, if you've got to drive more than an hour, people don't come. You sat on a wooden floor for three days. In my country, if people have to sit more than 40 minutes, they leave. You sat not only here for three days on a hard wooden floor, but you did it without air conditioning. In my country, if it's not padded pews and air conditioning, people don't often come back. In my country, we have an average of two Bibles per family. We don't read any of them. You hardly have any Bibles, and you memorize them from pieces of paper. I will not pray that we become like uh, you become like us, but I will pray 
that we become just like you. If you want to rejoice in your chains, make advancing the gospel your priority. Choose to rejoice in Christ than to complain about your circumstances. Have a little perspective. Number two, take the gospel wherever you go. And finally, remember, living is for Christ. Dying is gain for the believer. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this opportunity to share your word. I pray that you would use the end of the service, Lord, to continue to bring glory to yourself. Father, I pray that you would help us to share your gospel wherever we are. And Father God, forgive us, Lord, when we've turned our lives. Focus in on ourselves instead of on your glory. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation. We're going to stand together and sing. If God speaks to you and you need to come, you can come. You can join the church, give your life to Christ, commit to be baptized, or just pray with the pastor. If you need to come, won't you come?